Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 189. If you like Root, try out these other games. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Anthony, it is once again, Board Gamers Anonymous getting the big, heavy, crunchy, fun games to the table. And we have a great episode this week. We're talking about Root, the hotness from leader games that's, I guess, really kind of taken the world by storm lately. Yeah, this game is just everywhere right now. It is the sequel, the spiritual sequel, we should say, to Vast. It is incredibly asymmetrical. It's a war game. It's by Cole Whirl, who's done some other great games like Infamous Traffic, John Company. Both games I really enjoy. Um, but this one's much more accessible, and people are all over it. And while we're not doing like a full review here, we're going to talk about other games you might like. We are going to talk about it a little. If you want to hear like a lot more about the game itself and what what I think at least, uh, along with Jason from Every Night is Game Night, check out episode 106 of that podcast because we talk about it at length. Plus, we have the designer on to talk about how to actually play the game a little bit better. Yeah, we'll have a later review once we get all of the plays down at the table. But it is interesting that no matter where you live, no matter who you game with, whatever your game group happens to be, it's interesting that we all tend to have the same conversations at the table about particular hotness. And it's surprising. Like you're you're in Pittsburgh, I'm over here in New York City, and we were playing brass, and then but Root was coming up throughout the whole time, and people were talking about getting to the table and you know, I've heard this about it and I've heard that about it. And maybe it plays like this or maybe it plays like that. And it's interesting how it really enters the zeitgeist and it just permeates all these different types of game groups and different people that you wouldn't think it would hit. And it's it's hit pretty hard. Yeah, it's always funny when a game's like in your consciousness for months. You know, this is a game where we talked to the designers over a year ago. They had mm-hmm. the demo at Gen Con last year. Yes, we saw it we were part of the kickstarter we were involved with all that and then a full year plus later this game is now exploding everywhere it was the biggest hit of gen con and now everybody's playing it it's sold out you know their entire first print run is sold out their second print runs almost sold out and it's kind of a crazy thing where the game just kind of took on a life of its own and we didn't really expect that because it was similar to vast in a lot of ways and vast was very popular but at the same time had its own issues but yeah we'll get to that like what works what doesn't work and you know what you should be looking for but root is the game of the moment for sure anthony we still have some conversations going on with bga so watch tell everyone what's going on that we wanted them to get involved with all right guys so the big thing this week i want to tell you about is we have a contest coming up and it should be up by the time this episode airs Um, or shortly afterwards. And what we're asking for you guys to do is tell us your favorite games. We're coming up on episode 200, and we're going to be having kind of a special feature where we talk about our favorite games, but we want to know your favorite games as well. So all you have to do is hit up the Facebook page, hit up BoardGamersAnonymous.com, check out, there's going to be an article for that, several other episodes after this. And all you have to do is enter the contest, tell us what your favorite games are, I, th- I think we're going to set it to tell us at least five, but as many as you want after that, because we're aiming for a top 20. And we're going to use that. We're going to build a top 20 from everybody's responses and, and share that on episode 200 with our own favorite games. So let us know what you like. Let us know what your favorite games are. You will be entered into a chance to win a free game of your choice within certain conditions, which will be printed there you know, alongside the contest. It's very easy. Just list your favorite games, hit up BGG and copy paste. Simple, simple as that. So that should be up very soon. Looking forward to that and looking forward to everybody's answers. 
Yeah, we'd like to hear what you love to play so that we can talk about that in upcoming episodes. But Anthony, before we get into all that, let's hear what people are talking about right now. What's our question of the week? Okay, I asked everybody what Kickstarter trick is most effective in getting you to back a game. So stretch goal exclusivity, early bird offers, reduced shipping, never going to retail, basically all the the basic Kickstarter things that everybody tries to do. And then I also asked which of these tricks is least effective. So a lot of people said that most of the tricks were ineffective, which is funny. Like I have a similar thought. I don't like those things, but you know, getting down to the basics of human psychology, some of them really work. So there you go. Scott says having a well-produced game is a very, a good way to get there. And then Tommy says, He's in an extreme minority, and then he's never backed a Kickstarter and probably never will. And I agree, he's probably what? in a very extreme minority. <laughs> he said he has backed some P500 games for GMT, which I also have done, which is a great way to get those games early and for below retail. Chris says the thing that is most effective for him is that little trick when a publisher has a history of successfully funding and delivering campaigns. So a lot of people- were, <laughs> That's novel. Yeah, a lot of people are a little cynical on this one. Uh, some people were, you know, took it straight. John says stretch goals being cheaper. Exclusive is not necessary for him, which is important. Chris said, honestly, just guaranteed availability. He wants to back anything. He wants to make sure that it's not hard to find later. So the whole not going to retail is a big deal for him. But he also mentioned how the least effective is that metal coins, upgraded tokens, all that stuff is not always the way to go. It's too heavy. It makes the box too big. He mentions Dinosaur Island and the fact that he couldn't get everything in the box. Same problem sure. here. You know, you have too much stuff at a certain point. Um, and Martin says he really likes helping people produce a good game that only have Kickstarter as a means to get it to production. It's a little wary of big publishers just putting stuff out there all the time, which again, I agree with. I still back some of those, but I agree with. So I think for me, the stuff that's really effective is the exclusives, but more than anything, it's if I don't think a game's going to come out elsewhere, if it's only available on Kickstarter, like I missed Seventh Continent the first time, I backed it the second time because it's never coming to retail. So I wanted to make sure I got it. That's the big one for me. Other than, I guess, Seven Continent, maybe Monolith Games that have now what they claim, and, I, and it's shown to be true, that they're only going to be releasing on Kickstarter. Beyond that, I've heard a lot of different publishers say that this game's only going to be on Kickstarter, so you have to back it now, only to see that it's on online publishers, online retailers after the fact, and that really upsets me. So when I hear that, I, I don't always know if I should buy into that or not. Obviously, with very few exceptions, unless it's a very unique kind of craftsman-like game, like you know Gloomhaven, or maybe it is like the Batman or the Conan game. Typically, what kind of gets me is if there are exclusives. I don't like if certain components are exclusive because maybe I'm not in the position right then and there to be able to back that game, and that's going to make me feel bad if there is something that I don't have. In fact, it sometimes even works against me buying the game at a later point because it's like, hey, you remember that Hellas game that came out? Well, if you backed it, you would have gotten this special character that does all these cool things. But now that you didn't back it, you can't get that. I guess unless you pay for it second market, which is going to cost you exorbitant amounts of money. So in that situation and several other situations like that, I won't even buy the game because there was all this extra content to it, which I will never get. And I kind of feel cheated in that particular way. I understand why they're doing it. I don't begrudge them that, but I still do feel kind of cheated. I guess the one tried and true thing is how long am I going to get this game before it actually comes out to retail? So can I get this game to the table a month or two in advance? Because, you know, as we were talking about Root, if you can get the game to the table before it hits retail, then you're really going to have something up on almost everybody else. And it's definitely going to see some table time once everybody has it because they picked it up from retail. Then it's kind of hard to get the game out because people are like, oh, I already played it. I'm, I'm so, so on it. So therefore now your copy is almost like inert at that point. So I, I think that's going to be the biggest thing, how much before it gets out to retail or how you know long before it actually hits conventions. That tends to be the thing. 
But if a game has certain exclusive components to it, it's obviously going to make me want to back it. But if I can't, I probably won't back it at all. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Popularity is a big issue. Like Root, for example, they printed a ton of copies and they sold out immediately because of the buzz. But if you backed it and you were not at a con or lucky enough to have pre-ordered it from you know your local game store, then you have to wait till January or February when that second print run comes in. And that's, you know, a good solid four or five months for people who, you know, backed it on Kickstarter. They got it in August, but there's no way to know a game's going to be that big. So it's kind of tough to be on that boat. Like I was in that boat for Gloomhaven. I backed the original Kickstarter. It was a very small Kickstarter, you know, relatively speaking, like $200,000. I got it in February. The next print run of the game came out like almost a full plus year later. So mm. I had the game for a long time before anybody else had it. And now everybody has the game. There's like, oh, you know, 70,000 copies floating around out there. But I didn't know it was going to be that good. <laughs> like, There's no way to know that. <laughs> so sure. That ends up, you know, feeding into the whole like acquisition disorder. I got to back everything because you never know what's going to be amazing kind of a thing. It's tough. But if you really have a strong feeling about a game and you know it's not going to go to retail, it's kind of worth you know, speculating on, um, especially if they have a ridiculously low price, like Gloomhaven or Kingdom Death, especially where people got that for like a quarter of the price they ended up selling for. All right. So that's what everyone's saying about Kickstarter on Facebook. But we want to hear more from you and especially what Kickstarters you're interested in. Or if you'd like us to let you know about what Kickstarters you might want to back, we want you to reach out to us. So obviously there is many, many different ways on social media to reach out to us. Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on BoardGameGeek, our website, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our email addresses. There's just so many ways to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for all of those people that reached out to us previously. Love to keep that conversation going. So reach out to us and we'll be able to reach back to you on the next episode. All right, Anthony, so now it's on to the time for our acquisition disorders. Like, Kickstarter wasn't kicking our butt enough. Let's get on to the games that we eventually want to hit the table. All right, yes. Food Chain Magnet, the catch-up mechanism, and other ideas. <laughs> there what? Is, yes, there is no information about this other than the fact that it exists. Um, Splatter, the guys behind Splatter, they put up a post, I think on Facebook, maybe on BGG, and said, hey... We're working on an expansion. I don't think they've ever done an expansion. So I don't think so. Either. <laughs> no, right. But this game has been so popular. It's been like the biggest game they've ever released. They've done like five print runs now. And they've they basically put up like, if you're at Essen, you want to come play test this game. We're going to have it. We want your feedback, right? It's not releasing anytime soon. It's probably coming out at Essen in 2019. But Food Chain Magnet is one of my favorite games from the last two, three years. Um, it's this brutal, rough, like highly interactive Euro and probably the one of the best Splatter games, period. And nobody knows what's in this expansion yet. They say the catch-up mechanism, so maybe there's more of a catch-up <laughs> me mechanism in the game. Um, because but I'm the game, Yeah, well, <laughs> as it is, if you fall behind, you lose. So, like, teaching the game is brutal. They mention coffee. Uh, maybe there's a coffee, like, going Jeez. beyond beer and soda. Some kind of thing there. <laughs> Decorations, menus, maybe new cards. Ice cream is in there. This is all kind of in this weird kind of quote-heavy blurb they put up. So, nobody really knows what's in it yet. And so, I'm just kind of, like, speculating mentally what they could add i think a catch-up mechanism would be great i think new cards would be great new types of food and things to sell would be great coffee ice cream etc I'm, I'm really excited for this just because it's such a good game there are those issues it's really hard to teach the first time a player plays they're gonna lose guaranteed badly and they're gonna hate it and if they're not a euro player they're not gonna want to play again i had a miserable time the first time i played this and yet it's stuck in my head. I could not get it out of my head. I had to play again. But I think we're in the minority on that. So it'd be good to get other people into it who are not going to feel that way. So uh, I'm looking forward to this. After Essen, hopefully people post like what they played, what it looks like. And then next year, maybe we'll get this expansion. And that is the catch-up mechanism and other ideas for Food Chain Magnet. 
is that supposed to be the title or is that just kind of like the i guess placeholder that's what they put on bgg like they submitted it and it was approved it's number one on the hotness right now <laughs> food chain magnet colon the ketchup mechanism and other ideas <laughs> so um like our hobby isn't esoteric enough that we have to add something <laughs> like that. So someone's like, hey, I keep hearing about this board game thing. Let's see what the hottest game is. <laughs> the ketchup mechanism and other things? Come on. You guys are messing with me here. I really want that to be the case, though. <laughs> <laughs> They're splatters, so it actually might be the case because they are very much like blatant, no frills, yet excellent direct gameplay so i would not be surprised if that was just not on the box because that's splatter so yeah i'm not too sure about this expansion just because it there's so much in the base game already and I, that might just be the tipping point for most people as you mentioned it's it's hard to play if you're a first-time player and now there's extra dimensions to the game but maybe there'll be some streamlining who knows maybe there'll be a, a new printing if they kind of bring out like a big box version of this so that actually people can pick it up without having to spend 150 bucks. That'd be nice. All right. All right. So I want to talk about a game that is on Kickstarter right now, and that is Key Flow. This is a campaign that'll wrap up on Friday, October 12th. So you will have some time to check this campaign out and see if you'd like to pick it up. So Key Flow is the latest game in the Key series. And basically what we're looking at is yet again, another medieval setting where you are managing a small village and a number of different buildings come into play and you are sending your workers to different buildings to generate resources, transform and upgrade buildings and score victory points like any good Euro game. Now, if you're not familiar with the whole idea of key, it basically comes from the key flower series and there's a whole bunch of games in the kind of key universe, as I'm kind of coining at this point. And Key Flow is a card game version of Key Flower, the board game. Now, if you haven't played Key Flower, the board game, I don't think you have played the game, right, Anthony? No, I have played none of the key games somehow. I think it's another one of these companies that has a very small print run. And when the game comes out, it kind of sells out and it's really hard to find. And typically... The only place you can normally get it is through Kickstarter. So if you're interested in the card game version of this, this might be great. And there's also going to be a pledge manager. So you could actually pick up the other board game versions of this if you're interested. Now, Key Flow, like Key Flower, as I mentioned, is all about building and maintaining this village and sending out workers. And now in Key Flower, what you're doing is there's a little bit of an auction for these different tiles that have different buildings on them. And you're building up your little village. And it's very important how you put together the village because the road is going to be essential on moving your resources. So your meeples are actually currency, but they're also a worker placement element to it as well. So it's very tricky, not to mention the fact that you can also play your, your meeples on other people's buildings, which makes things even trickier. But in key flow, a lot of those elements are still true, but it's basically coming down to cards. So there's a drafting mechanic so you'll have an opportunity to have a handful of cards. You'll pick one card, decide to put it into play, and now you have a new building in play. Beyond that, there are these keeples. Now, instead of meeples, they call everything with a key. So these keeples that you'll actually have as a card. So instead of actually having meeples, you'll have a card that'll have these little keeples on it. And you'll place this on top of or in front of a building. And that will activate the building that you own or someone else owns based upon the card. So the card will tell you where this this little person can go to activate those particular buildings so it's a very streamlined version of building up this little village connecting the roads connecting the river and then in the summer phase there'll be these boats that'll give you extra abilities the fall phase there'll be these storehouses where you'll be able to store up resources victory points and then the final winter phase there'll be these big kind of bonus cards that you'll be able to choose from it's almost identical to Key Flower, but instead of the auction, there's a card drafting and it's a little streamed down, but it's it's essentially the same exact game. So if you don't have the table space for a Key Flower game, or maybe you just want something that's a little quicker or you enjoy the drafting mechanic more than you do the auction mechanic, Key Flow might be for you. 
If you want to pick up the game itself, it's going for about 40 euros, which is about $52 American. Obviously, that could change from time to time. And as I mentioned, there'll be a pledge manager. So if you want to get their other games, that might also be available for you. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. I'm not sure if I'll back it yet. I'm going to kind of get a closer look at it as far as the game's concerned. But I've generally enjoyed Keyflower and its different expansions. And I know it has a loyal and cult following. So this is definitely something you should take a look at. I am interested, but again, have not played any of these. So I guess any of them will be interesting at this point. It's true. All right, Anthony. So that's everything for acquisition disorders. Let's get on to the games that actually hit our table this week. We want to let you know if those games are a buy and you should pick those games up. If the game's a play and you should sit down and play them. If the game's a dodge and you should find yourself another table. Or if the game's a dreaded burn and you should avoid the game at all costs, whether it's a board or a card game, it does not matter. Just avoid that, my friend. So, Anthony, what have you had hit the table this week? Okay, I'm going to talk about a couple games real quick, both pretty quick. First of these is Fae. This is a semi-new release from Z-Man Games. It's a re-implementation of Clans from 2002, designer Leo Colavini. The game has not changed significantly, except that it's much, much prettier. Uh, mechanically, though, it's roughly the same. The, the new version of the game has you moving different druid figures around on the map. So at the beginning of the map, you have all these different player pieces out on the map, and you're going to have one of five colors that is your color. But nobody else knows what it is. It's secret, and you're going to keep it to yourself. Everybody has their own color, and all five colors are going to score throughout the game. So even if you're playing with a full four players, one of them is going to be not a player color. If you play with two or three, then you have multiple different colors that are not player colors. On your turn, you're going to move any one druid into a space with any number of other druids. So you can move druids into a space with other druids. Each grouping of spaces, there's five spaces in every section, has one of each of the five colors, and you move them around. Anytime a group of druids is completely surrounded by empty spaces, it scores. There are scoring cards from one to five. Once all 12 of those cards are gone, I think there's four number ones, three number twos, and then two threes, two fours, and one five, the game is over. Um, also, if all of the possible actions on the map disappear, the game is also over. That's pretty rare, though, as an endgame mechanic. Usually it's the cards. So what you're trying to do is get your guys into all these different action spaces, make sure they score as often as possible, but also keep other people from scoring. There are also, when you play the scoring card there's always a blessed space and then a cursed space so if you can get it into a cursed space and none of your guys are there then all of the place all of the players there are removed so it's it's kind of an interesting thing you can mess with a lot of the game is trying to kind of manipulate and play to the what other people are trying to do if you can figure out what other colors people are it's really beneficial but you generally don't know until the last like quarter or third of the game it's very interesting because of that. The game plays incredibly quickly. The box is 20 minutes. I think in my experience, it's 15 to 30 usually. It's very quick. And while there is kind of a bluffing mechanism here, it only really works if people know who you are or don't know who you are, as the case may be. I really enjoy it. And the reason I really enjoy it is you can sit down and play two or three games of this in a row in like an hour, give or take. And people really get into it because... They don't know what colors you are. They don't know what colors they are necessarily at the start of the game. And you really end up kind of playing out the different possibilities. The first time you play it, it feels random. The second time it feels slightly organized. The third time you're like, okay, I feel like I know what I'm trying to do. And now I have a sense of how to balance this out. It's a fun game. I can see why they brought it back. I can also see why the score on BGG is not super high. It's a relatively light game. It's very quick. It, if you don't play it a bunch of times, it feels random. It doesn't feel like you have a ton of control over what happens. And in the end of the day, it comes across as kind of an abstract game. It's very puzzly. It's very abstract. The fact that they're druids doesn't matter all that much. But I do appreciate that the artwork is so nice. The board is pretty. The pieces are nice. The, the different cards you have that you're playing are very nice. So 
it's a game I enjoy having. I'm going to throw it in my game bag for a little bit now because it's quick, it's easy to play, it's accessible. And, uh, you know, most people I play with, even if they don't like it, they didn't invest a lot of time. So this is a solid play. And that's Faye. The second game I wanted to talk about is Pococo. Pococo is from uh, Brain Games. They are the people behind Ice Cool and a lot of other kids' games. And this is designed by Adam Porter. And at first glance, you think, hey, another kid's game. It's from Brain Games. It's not really a kid's game. It's actually a trick-taking game. But the reason it's unique is that you are actually bidding on who will take the tricks. So you taking tricks doesn't mean anything. And that's very unique. And I like that a lot because I generally don't like trick-taking games. But this one's very good. (laughs) Uh, The basic idea of the game is you start every round. You have eight cards. You place them face out in front of you in this kind of peacock mechanism in front of you. You don't know what those cards are. You will never see what cards are in front of you, but you see what cards are in front of every single other person. You then take turns bidding on each other person how many tricks you think they're going to get. There are eight tricks total. You have nine bidding tokens. You place them wherever you think, including yourself at the end. And you are trying to figure out who's going to take the most tricks based on what cards you see. It's basic trick-taking rules, high number in the suit wins, the trump, high high number in that suit wins. That's it. Very interesting in that way. But the other trick here is that obviously you're not going to play your own cards into the, uh, into the hand for every single time. You're going to play the person to your left. So you can see what their cards are. You can manipulate based on your own bet. And this is the very interesting part is you see everybody bet and then you look and you see, hey, the guy to the right of John only bid one. I bid three. That's not good because he has control over what John puts out there and he could make poor decisions because he only bid one. It's very interesting in that way. And this is another game very similar to uh, Faye that we just talked about, where the first time you play it, it feels kind of random because it's really hard to wrap your head around. But it's not a heavy game. It's not complicated. It's still just a trick-taking game. And once you've played it two or three times and kind of wrapped your head around the idea of bidding instead of trying to win the tricks and then playing someone else's tricks, it's very, very interesting. I don't like trick-taking games in general, but I like this one quite a bit because... It's not the core mechanisms that you see where you could have a hand where you do nothing interesting, you score no points. You can still have hands where you score no points, but it's not really on you. (laughs) Like you are bidding. And if you bid wrong on everything, every single thing you put out there, then, you know, you know, take some time, think about it, maybe make better bids next time. It's not like the draw doesn't kill you necessarily. You have a lot of information to work with. You have a lot of things you can do. I really enjoy this one. I'm going to say Pococo is a buy. Hmm. And as a trick-taking game for me, that's high praise, I feel. <laughs> um, it jumps up there with very few other games in that category for me. So definitely check this one out. All right, I'm going to have to say the classic, where is Anthony and what have you done with him? Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Because it's trick-taking, but it's not really about that. It's more about the the bidding and the bluffing. Sure. I mean, I think both of these games are outstanding just based upon the presentation. They're both very unique, both very colorful and dynamic. And it's just interesting to see something taken in a different way. And for it to actually turn around somebody who doesn't like the base mechanic by adding a different twist on it is fantastic really really impressed with this yeah and it's so pretty to look at you look at these peacocks with the cards flayed out it's such a cool presentation for the game like i really really enjoy that but thankfully there's a good game behind it too excellent all right well i want to talk about two recent expansions that came out from a game that anthony and i both love a great deal that game is spirit island now, we've talked a lot about spirit island but just to give you the the cliff notes version of this spirit island is all about this native people that are dealing with some issues of colonization from other countries, mostly Europe, that are coming in and kind of trashing things and really messing up the Dahan. And the Dahan are not defenseless. In fact, they have help from the different spirits of the island. So in the base game, you get a large number of spirits and it's a co-op game and you're fighting against colonization of your native island. Each of the spirits play very 
different because they have their own individual play style and special abilities and their own cards. And it's really a fantastic game. The new expansions that come with this are also in keeping with that great gameplay. First up is Spirit Island, Heart of the Wildfire, and Serpent Slumbering Beneath the Island. First off, I gotta say this about all of the spirits in the game. They do not mess around when it comes to naming things. They really go all out. Like you would just be like, hey, you know, clearly that's just a serpent. Or no, no, they go all out. The serpent slumbering beneath the island. Very descriptive here and very much about what that specific spirit does in the game and how it does play differently. So these two different spirits that come with this promo, and the promo is about $10 plus shipping. You can pick it up directly from the company or the Board Game Geek store. It also comes with cards that go along with these different boards. So what's interesting about this is I would say, and this is my humble opinion here, these are the most complex spirits as far as gameplay is concerned because really what you're seeing is two spirits that are very powerful dramatically in a different way but also do a lot of havoc as far as the game is concerned. So the first spirit, the Heart of the Wildfire, is interesting because it moves very quickly. It's very destructive to the colonization, so it's helping you out a lot, but in doing so, because it's a wildfire and it's not contained, it's also doing a lot of damage to Dahan and leaving a lot of blight. Now, blight is one of these mechanics in the game that if just like kind of like pandemic, if you get all the blight on the board, you lose the game. So it's managing that fast moving destruction that a wildfire tends to do. Now, there are some aspects of the particular spirit here that are actually it's not so bad if you get blight because some cards work off of it so you really have to manage that destruction it's fantastic but it's extremely difficult now the other spirit is serpent slumbering beneath the island is also very different because this spirit moves very slowly in game so at the start of the game not much is happening and the island looks like it's going to be taken over and then eventually the spirit really takes you know hold and really starts crushing the enemy but what's challenging here is, just like the Oberos, the serpent needs to eat the presence of either another spirit or, if you're playing solo, its own presence. Now, presence in the game is going to allow you to do different things, activate special ability cards that are on the island. So presence is extremely important for the game. So you're almost, once again, obviously like the snake eating its own tail. So management is very, very difficult here as well. Both of these spirits, in my experience, play best solo. I have played them in a group and it freaks people out because they're like, you're going to lose us the game here because a lot of things are happening. And then the other players have to kind of manage that a little bit better because you are having a destructive element to add, the, add to the game, even though it might be helpful in the long run. This expansion, especially because of the low price point on it, is an absolute buy. They're fantastic, interesting, and really fun spirits to play as a solo game. As far as playing with groups, it's definitely challenging. I would not bring this in with anybody who's new at the table because they have to know how to help you manage your spirit. Now, the other expansion is a big box expansion, or at least a bigger box expansion. It's not a huge box. In fact, I really do like what Greater Than Games have done here with their expansions obviously the promo expansions is just kind of sealed up this is a kind of big box slash small box expansion this is spirit island branch and claw this was the expansion i was really looking forward to because while i did love spirit island there was some elements to the game that i felt was a little lackluster like how the game ended abruptly how certain elements of the game weren't as thematic and basically, the island didn't do much other than just being a board where it just had different elements on it. Now, this expansion does a number of different things. Now, first off, it has four different tokens that come into play in the game. Previously, you didn't have really any kind of tokens like this. These tokens are interesting because they start with the game and they're added to the game and they work off certain cards. And basically, they're going to interact with the colonization here. So there are animal tokens that are going to allow you to mess with the different explorers in the game, cause fear. There's the wild tokens that are going to allow you to negate certain uh, construction in certain areas, and that's really great too. There are disease tokens that are going to stop certain lands from being built upon, which is excellent, especially 
if people are pushing at a certain point. And then finally, there is strife. So if a certain area is going to be ravaged, where the it builds up with all the colonization, now they're going to really just mess with the land. Strife is going to allow that different land spot to be protected. Now, all of these tokens come into play. They'll be used up. You'll be able to add more, move things around. In addition to those tokens that come into play, they're also going to play with the two new spirits in the game. And that's really important because not only are you getting the tokens, but you're getting two different spirits that are really going to, I would say, radically change the game. In addition to the tokens, these two spirits are going to work off the tokens the best. These two spirits are Sharp Fangs Behind the Leaves and Keeper of the Forbidden Wilds. So the Sharp Fangs ones are going to work with the beast tokens and the Keeper of the Forbidden Wilds is going to work off of the different wilds tokens in the game. So you really have to play with these spirits in order to play with the tokens because otherwise the tokens don't really do much of anything. So they are pretty much required as far as that game is concerned. In addition to that, there are new event cards that come into the game. Those are really great. There are scenario cards and there are different scenarios that come into play that will actually dramatically change the gameplay. Really love that. That was probably my favorite part of the game. Overall, this expansion is an absolute buy, not just because the two new spirits do different things like all of the other spirits, and not just that the tokens add a little more density to the game, but also because the scenarios and the new island cards that are available in the game really do add a different dimension to the game. Because as you're exploring and finding out about the different powers of the island, and as the colonizers are exploring and finding out different powers, they're getting benefits, you're getting benefits. The game basically turns into a campaign game. Now, I do enjoy this game now best with this new expansion added to it. That being said, adding this new expansion and all of the micromanagement that comes into the game does make this a one game night experience. Just because there's now so many tokens to take care of, tokens are pretty big in comparison to the spots on the board, not only managing your spirits, but you're managing now these tokens, you're managing the scenarios. It's a lot to manage in this game. So the expansion's a buy, but just understand that it adds so much good stuff to the game that the game almost becomes a totally different type of game. This is going to sit you down for about, I would say, at least three hours. If you're playing with a full player count, obviously the game scales very well. But there's a lot more to this game. All right, so now on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about if you like Root, you should try out these other games. With Root being the new hotness out there, everyone's getting this game to the table or looking to get this game to the table. So once this game actually does hit and you are enjoying so many different elements to the game, you might say to yourself, well, what else plays great just like Root? And your game group might want to play something very similar as far as maybe being a little lighter, around the same weight, or even maybe a little bit heavier. Root has a lot of different aspects to it, and we're going to talk about some of those. So, Anthony, take us through a little bit about Root and its roots. Yeah, yeah, this is a very asymmetrical game, as you've probably heard. But at its core, it's really just a war game. You have several different factions. They're all trying to vie for a similar type of thing. You have the Marquita Cat who is basically your fascist leader trying to take over the woods, building different things to produce different goods. They score points by building things and producing things. You have the Airy, which are the alternative government off in the far woods, and they have a very strict regiment where they build a kind of tableau of cards that program out your actions. But when those fail, the government fails, and you have to start over from scratch. You have the Woodland Alliance. The Woodland Alliance is your insurgents. They are on the map almost not at all at the beginning of the game, but they slowly start to rise up. And if they're ignored, they will overflow and take out everybody. And then you have the Vagabond who hops from spot to spot, stealing items, exploring ruins, trading goods, and, and building up his uh, store of items to take actions. It is a extremely asymmetrical game but at the same time the core mechanisms are all the same the way you move the way you attack the way you interact with each other is the same for everybody and the end score you're trying to reach of 30 points is the same for everybody the game kind of plays with that idea that vast brought out but 
narrows the scope a little bit and makes it more accessible, you know, easier to teach in general than Avast was as kind of a notoriously hard game to teach, kind of introduces a whole new um, swath of gamers to the idea of these asymmetrical war games. So we're going to talk about games that kind of do a similar thing. They're asymmetrical, they're war games, they are th this whole idea of different ways to approach victory from different mechanics, different angles, different philosophies of gameplay. And we're going to do it in the way we do it with these, with some lighter games that are a little bit simpler and more accessible or more thematic, games that are a similar weight, and then games that are heavier, just heavy, heavy games. I'm going to kick things off on my end with a game that is a little bit lighter than Root, not significantly so, but is kind of has the the hotness behind it of a popular IP, and that is The Expanse board game. This came out a little over a year ago at Gen Con from WizKids, uh, designed by Jeff Engelstein, and it is a relatively quick, about an hour-long area control-style war game with you know support up to four players, and people compared it to Twilight Struggle because it's card-driven, and the victory mechanics and conditions for every player is a little bit different. Like the things you can do with the cards vary based on which faction you are. Because you have the UN, you have the Mars, you have the OPA, and you have Protogen, uh, the corporation. And each of them is a little bit different, but the map is all the same. And a lot of this is similar to what you see in Root. It's not quite as asymmetrical as Root, but in terms of, you know, relatively small board, easy to map, relatively small deck of cards, easy to kind of to get your head around and the very, very basic ideas of war games kind of distilled down this simple, you know, sub 3.0 weight mechanic. It does a very good job of that. And if you like the expanse, the TV show or the, the book series, this game is very good at evoking kind of the, uh, the general themes of that show. And there's an expansion coming here in the next few months, which adds a little bit more from the, the books and, seasons that come after this game was released so definitely worth checking out on the lighter end well before there was root there was small world from days of wonder games i love small world so much that i picked up the super duper version of it that came out in this gigantic wooden box why i liked it so much was because all of the different races played differently they had a different special ability and they were matched up with a special power that was unique to that race and by putting those two pieces together, you got a, also got a unique number of troops that you can put into action. Once that race played out, it knocked out other people, and then eventually went to decline, and then you could choose a new special race slash power combo to come into play that would also add to your victory points and your different armies in play. So it was this kind of really interesting asymmetrical game that went on and on and on. The game scaled amazingly well because it had different boards, great production. If you're looking for a lighter version of Root, that's going to get a lot of people to the table. Try out Small World. All right. So moving to the medium level, kind of games around the same weight of Root, we have Rising Sun. Now, there's a whole bunch of games kind of in this category of you know, the medium weight Euro style area control games that kind of borrow from war games, but aren't really war games. And I feel like this is a good category of games to explore. You have games like Blood Rage and Kemet and Innis, but Rising Sun, to me at least, feels like the most closely linked to Root in that you have multiple clans you can play as. The game comes with the many, many different clans you can choose from. And you the, each of them plays a little bit different. They have a special power. They have different things that are unique about them. Now, it's not nearly as asymmetrical as Root. So if you want something like that, there are very few games that do that. But the way the mechanics of the map and the way you're interacting with them play out are very unique as well. And they feel kind of similar. You have this strong element of negotiation added to the game, which is not really in Root necessarily, but it does have that strong feel of like a war game and that you're like playing against these different um, expectations of how you're going to play out the game. Um, you're recruiting different characters to put on the map. You're marshalling people. You're training them and getting new abilities. You're harvesting different, you know, um, coins from the map. Um, and you can betray each other even. Like you can create these different alliances at the beginning of every round and then betray them at some point and, you know, 
that changes everything about how you're playing. The battle phases are very unique, whereas, you know, Root is very deterministic. It's about how many characters you have out there. This game is about, you know, kind of the push and pull of how many you're going to put out there, whether you're going to commit seppuku, taking hostages, hiring Ronin that can help you in your battles. It is very heavily on the area control side of things, but the stripped down accessibility of it is very similar to Root in that you can teach people quickly and it gets people into this idea of what war games are like and how to engage with other players in kind of a very combat combative way without it being so draining and exhausting and heavy. That is Rising Sun. I think it's a good kind of lateral move if you're looking for a more area control focused, you know, Euro style war game. Another medium weight, or as Anthony said, a lateral move from Root to Star Wars Rebellion. Now, Star Wars Rebellion is all about two asymmetrical factions fighting each other. You have the Rebellion versus the Empire. So if you're playing as the Empire, the Empire has all of this great military assets all over the board. They're searching for the Rebellion to destroy them. You also have the Death Star, of course. So you're going around blowing up planets, which is awesome. And it's all about a hide-and-seek kind of situation. So build up, destroy, wash, rinse, repeat. Now, the Rebellion is doing something different. They're trying delay tactics because they're trying to run the clock out. So while the Empire is searching for them, they're ducking and dodging and just trying to avoid, but at the same time, trying to sabotage the Empire's efforts to build up this massive army and kind of divert some of their resources to different areas. The board's beautiful. The miniatures are gorgeous. It's a lot of fun to play. You're basically remaking the Star Wars trilogy. Now, if you're a big Star Wars fan, you'll know and love everything here. If you're not a Star Wars fan, you're still going to love everything about this game because it plays so, so very well, especially with the expansion, which does some minor tweaks of the rule set, especially the military action. So highly recommend if you're looking for a lateral move from Root to a two-player version of Root in a way, I would definitely check out Star Wars Rebellion. All right. So now we're going to move to the heaviest game recommendations. And on my end, I'm going to keep it fairly broad because the one of the big spiritual indicators here that, that kind of draws from is the coin series. The coin series is a ongoing series of games from GMT. I think there's up to... 10 maybe more of these games now that they're counterinsurgency so counter co insurgency in coin and different situations in which you had kind of a ruling government and insurgency of some kind maybe other factions involved and all of them very asymmetrical to each other the the one that kind of stands out as kind of these the start of all this is cuba libre and this is considered the most accessible entry-level game in this series. And it's the one I played first. And all of these are based on Volko Runke's game system, which has been used across many, many different games. You have Andy and Abyss, Cuba Libre, A Distant Plane, A Fire and Lake, Colonial Twilight. And they're all kind of based on different um, historical contexts. So you have the Cuban Revolution, you have the, uh, the Chilean uh, combats, you have A Distant Plane, which is about like modern anti-terrorism you have fire in the lake is about vietnam you have colonial twilight which is india at the end of british occupation they have historic liberty or death which is about the american revolution falling sky and pendragon are kind of ancient takes on this but the the whole idea is that it's guerrilla warfare and you have some faction that is trying to rise up against the ruling faction which is just trying to tamp down and control everything that idea really plays out in Root. And if you like that, if that's the part you like, if you like the idea of these different factions kind of fighting out this, you know, the way the game plays and all having their unique way that they approach it in different victory conditions with often a solo mechanic involved, the the coin series has all of that and much more. They are much more complicated. They are strictly war games. There are spreadsheets and flowcharts at the back of the rule books. But if that's what you're looking for and you enjoy that part of it the most, definitely check out the coin series. And finally, from the heavy section, and by heavy, I mean complex as far as long and having to coordinate your action with other players at the table, 
I want to bring back Spirit Island with the expansion Branch and Claw because in particular, what you're going to be seeing here is, is a complex gameplay in which in order to utilize your asymmetrical powers of your spirit to the best of its ability, you are going to have to work with everyone at the table in order to coordinate actions to get the most out of your spirit because this is a very complex and quickly moving co-op game that could easily spiral out of control at any particular moment. So while you're trying to match the blight on the table, you're trying to figure out how your cards work with the three other players at the table and what special abilities and what kind of presence you're putting at the table and how to kind of coordinate all that together. In the base game, it's complicated enough. With the expansion, it's much longer and a lot more to kind of keep an eye out for. So there are six games that if you like Root, you should check out because each of these games offers a different dimension to the asymmetrical, complex war gameplay of this fantastic system that Root employs. All right, so that's everything for this week, but that's not the end of BGA. If you want to check out some brand new episodes that you haven't had a chance to listen to, check out our Patreon account at patreon.com backslash BGA. There are brand new episodes about everything in board gaming that you might be interested in listening to. All right, Anthony, so that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you all a seat at the table. <laughs>